Hey guys, it's Matt here, and I got a story for you. When I was a kid, I was playing hockey, and oh man, there was this one year, this one team, we could not beat these guys. They were all over us. There were competitive games, though. They were tight, but we just could not beat them. And I remember the last game of the year, it was up against this team, and we were gearing up. We were like, we have to get these guys. When we won that last game, it was so satisfying because we finally got the victory over the team that had dummied us, that had dominated us for so long. I think this is the same thing with sexual brokenness, with sexual sin, where there's been brokenness in our lives and the enemy has come and taken ground and he's dominated us for so long, but we get to make a difference. We get to be part of a message and a a mission of freedom. It is such a cool opportunity. So I want to invite you, men and women of any age, to be part of the Action Squad. The Action Squad is something that we're putting together right now. We're looking for 100 people to be on the Action Squad. There's going to be some competitive nature to it. There's prizes. And we're going to work together to help produce a documentary that is literally going to change the world. We're featuring stories of sexual brokenness, of people who have been restored and redeemed, reconciled to God and to people in their their lives. And we're going to feature these stories in this world-class documentary that will be a resource for churches to host movie nights, for small small groups to watch together, for families to watch and be inspired by. And it's going to highlight the problem in the church, but also show the, the power of God that is at work when we bring this stuff to light. And so if you want to be part of the Action Squad and help us put this documentary together, I would love for you to go to restoredministries.ca slash Action Squad. You can watch a 10-minute video there that I put together on what it can look like for you to join us in this mission and be part of putting this documentary together. So restoredministries.ca slash Action Squad. Hope to see you there. Welcome to the Peer Victory Podcast, full of hot tips to help you win at sex, conquer porn, and find purpose in staying free forever. Here are your hosts, Matt Klein and Braden Hafner. Well, welcome back. And you might be thinking, she doesn't sound like Braden or Matt. <laughs> That's because I'm not. Um, I am the wifey, Kristen. So last week we had on Rosie and Charity and we just wanted to carry this on to the next uh, week here. Um, last week we talked more about discovery and we really highly recommend you go back and listen to that podcast if you missed it at all. And this week we're going to focus more on recovery here. Um, just to reintroduce a little bit, Rosie, um, her ministry is called Fight for Love. Please check it out. She's got lots going on there. Um, and Charity has Restored to More. Um, that two is with a, a number two. So Restored to More. Um, lots of resources there as well. Um, welcome back, ladies. So good to have you once again. It's lovely to be here. Thanks for having me. So this week, we're going to focus more on kind of the recovery part, um, just from a wife's perspective, a woman's perspective. Um, I find out my husband has a porn addiction. Um, what kind of support do I need? Great question. Um, and such a, a vital, vital question, because you really do need support. We talked last week about, uh, you know, the fact that he's crashed the car, but you're bleeding out too. It's just quite often you can't actually see it. Um, And it often comes as quite a shock to the wife to realize quite how badly she has been damaged because this creeps up on you, you know, you know, years and years and years of deception, like, but you don't even know it's deception. Just your instincts have just been, what, what happened there? I'm, it takes a, a really long time to actually fully comprehend all the ways that this has been affecting you. So you do need support. And fortunately, there are 
loads of options. There are really are loads of options for your circumstances and also what you feel you need and also what your situation is because some um, organizations are really great if your husband is very abusive. Some organizations are really great. Uh, they're very, uh, you know, uh, good on the sort of spiritual aspect and, you know, they, they bring a lot of faith-based material into it. Um, others are uh, free, <laughs> just put it out there, uh, you know, and, you know, you can have, they've got online communities and you can join and, you, you know, they've even got apps. You've got others which have, you could pay like a, I mean, they're so reasonable now. They really are. You don't have to do really expensive therapy. Really expensive therapy really helps, but not everybody's in that situation. So you might join one of these small groups online mm -hmm. where you pay a subscription and they have different groups running every day of the week. And you can literally go in your car with your phone, put the children in front of Netflix and just sit in the car and cry and listen to other women. You know, whatever your circumstances are, because you might be, you know, in rural Idaho, you know, I don't know. <laughs> for example, um, you know, and you can't get to see a, a CSAP because that's a certified sexual addictions therapist or an APSAT, which is uh, for the betrayal trauma side, you know, you're nowhere near it. So there are all these options. So I would recommend going on my website, fightfulofministries.org, go to the resource page where I am basically building up a just a library of all the resources that I can find and then going on and interviewing people. So you get a flavor of the people who run these ministries um, and try a few out. But your question was why? Why do you need a support group? Was it was it why or where? You know what? Either one, though. I like the why do you need a support group, too. I didn't have that. I said, what kind of support do I need? But ah. that's, why is good as well? Yeah. Why do you need a support group? You need for so many reasons. Um, if you can just see the faces of the other women, that breaks so much shame. And quite often I've heard a, a lot of times people go, but the women are so beautiful. Like what are their, what are their husbands thinking? It, it comes as such a real shock because in your head, you know, before you actually meet people in recovery, you sort of have this image of like, mm. I, I don't know. I don't know what you have an image of, but it's not the women in reality. Like I have a, an online support group you know, and you see the little profile pictures when people apply to join. And I'm like, how? how, you know, even now I go, she's absolutely beautiful. Like this really has nothing to do with the way that a woman looks. It really doesn't. So that's, that's, you know, that's a, an added bonus to go into a support group, but yeah. you're going to you're gonna feel validated. You're going to feel heard. You're going to have people reflect back your situation to you in a new way because sometimes you need to just go am I crazy and they go no honey you're not crazy that's not right you know you know I've been there I'm not there anymore this is why I did and also sometimes it's easy to see the craziness in someone else's life because you know you're not so involved that's important also you know there's such good resources in a group you might be going through really good material to actually explain stuff what's going on in the brain what has this done to my sexuality you know how do I even set boundaries? So you're going to be learning practical stuff as well. You know, there's so much good stuff in a, in a support group. Yeah, you'd absolutely, absolutely need a support group. You can't do this on your own. Well, you can. And I tried it. And then I was like, well, if there's no support here, I'm going to have to make it. Mm -hmm. Because it's, it's horrible doing it on your own. Because you do feel like you're the only person in the whole wide world who's ever dealt with this. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. Totally, totally agree. I think uh, 
just hitting on that, you know, anytime I hear this stuff, I always go back to my story and, um, I didn't really realize how valuable a support group was going to be. And there was a lot of shame around it. I mean, just knowing that I was showing up to a group for something that I didn't do, like, let's just, you know, talk about that. Cause I was, I was mad. I remember I'll never forget. I'm showing up to a group and I already had like past trauma from my childhood. Cause my mom, I was an alcoholic. And so I had gone to groups before. So I already knew like what the AA setting was like. And I was there again, not because of me, right? It was because of somebody else. And so there's a lot of shame, a lot of already um, deep wounds there that I had never really dug up. And so here I am. It's a Monday night. It's late. It's at nighttime. It's dark. It's raining. It's cold. I'm in my hoodie. I'm walking into this big building. I don't know anybody. I'm an introvert. So I'm just walking. I feel like I'm walking like, just shame, shame. I'm walking down this, like, it was just terrible red carpet of shame. And I'm just like, I hate this. I hate this. I hate this. I don't want to be here. This is not my fault. This is not my problem. I can't believe I have to show up here and just walking into a group of other women and just sitting there and talking about your feelings. And I just remember the very first meeting, I couldn't believe that I was here. I couldn't believe that this was my story. I couldn't believe that I was here based off something that I didn't do. So there was a lot of anger and frustration but I continued to show up. Yeah. And the more that I showed up, the more that my guard came down, the more that I felt seen, heard, validated, and like Rosie was talking about. And I started to understand a lot about what was going on with me through betrayal trauma and understood a lot of the addiction. And I think that in itself like totally helped me for where I was at in my season of recovery because they were safe people. And that's what you really need. And that's, that's, that's like my biggest advice is you just need safe people in your corner in the beginning. And what a safe person is somebody who's not going to judge you, somebody who's going to accept you, who is not going to give you advice, you know, um, just somebody who's just going to sit there and listen. And uh, they're going to protect your emotions and they're going to allow you to be you. That's the kind of person that you want sitting across the table from you, even if you're not in a support group yet. You just want somebody safe with your emotions because your whole world is unsafe at that in that moment. So the more you can build safety in your life, the more secure you're going to be. And if you can find a safe person who is actually either experienced or qualified in that even better. And and because, you know, unfortunately there are a lot of well-meaning, lovely people out there, but they have no idea about this addiction and they give you this really well-meaning advice um, that's actually really, really harmful. So now fortunately because of all the organizations that have sprung up and a lot recently, I don't know what God is doing, but somehow he is just building a lot of ministries and podcasts and all sorts of stuff right now. And the beautiful thing is you just go on the website, join the group, and you have that immediate safe space where everybody else is going through the same thing. And people who are experts in this, who are going to give you good advice and you need good advice. You really need good advice because the places you normally go, maybe your church or you know, family, not guaranteed it's going to be good advice at right. all. And it's not necessarily safe either, right? Yeah. It might be safe, but, and it might be really well loving and everything, but it, but you know, the trouble is with, with, you know, people who are close to you, you're then having to manage their expectations because they're freaking out. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. The marriage is going to implode. What do I say? What do I say? Or just have more sex with them, buy some laundry. It'll be fine. Everybody, everybody has problems. It'll be fine. You know, and it's like, no, that's not the advice that you need right then. You actually need people who are, who are dealing with it. And you don't necessarily want to paint him with a picture, like a brush that other people are like, 
they see him absolutely absolutely and you don't want people are going to pile on your husband and go he's done what yeah how can you stay with him that's just awful yeah that's not going to help uh, for sure so what does healing look like messy (laughs) (laughs) ugly Uh, I wish people prepared me more I wish there was like Hey, once you start the recovery journey, you guys are going to be two very messy people. Um, because I think I really believe like once he started getting the help that he needed, then our marriage was going to be good. You know, we were going to be great. Our relationship's going to get better. And, and then I was like, Oh wait, there's another side of the marriage and that's me. And that's when I started getting support and recovery. But still, even when I started, um, it brings up so many raw emotions and, and the emotions are high, high for both. You, if you are both seeing your own individual therapist, if you're both in individual groups, the emotions are hot and he is probably coping, um, you know, with his emotions for the very first time where in reality he used to have high emotions. He'd medicate them with something. So then he didn't have to feel it. And then that's why we didn't know he was all good all the time. Good. Right. Now they're coming home from group therapy, hard day work. We see the raw emotions. Right. And I will never forget. This sounds terrible. I don't mean it, but he came home and he was a hot mess. I mean, eating his hot Cheetos, having chocolate, having wine, and then was just angry. And I was like, dude, bro, it's one (laughs) o'clock and you are, there's something going on. Like there's something wrong. You're trying to, he didn't even know. I was like, I just looked at him. I started laughing. I was like, you okay? Like what's going on? He's like, I don't know. I don't know. But it was because for the first time, he had never really dealt with his emotions. He actually had to feel them for the first time. And it was really rough. I remember feeding. I had an infant at the time of our recovery process. And I remember just crying upstairs saying, Lord, sometimes I just kind of wish he would be addicted again. Because then at least his emotions, I knew what it was going to look like. I knew that he was going to be maybe not nice to me, but it was bearable where this seems so like unbearable. It just high emotions are really hard to deal with if you yourself have high emotions. And I did because I myself was working on my own healing. So it was like, we were two wounded people. And the best part I think about our our journey is I'll never forget. I uh, so badly thought that now that he was going to start recovery, now I'm going to start being treated the way that I deserve. He's going to, he's going to start, you know, treating me like a princess. He caused me so much hurt and damage. Like this is my time. Like he's going to bring home flowers every day. Better, right? Yeah. I mean, I deserve it. Right. But what I had to come to reality with is that will come in time. But right now we both like the car analogy. We are both bleeding. Mm -hmm. Now we're both in the hospital and we're both getting surgery. Now we're in the hospital room, but we're both on hospital beds next to each other. And I can't look at him and say, Hey, you're going to take me on a date tomorrow night. Right. And that's what I didn't understand in recovery. I actually literally bought two books. It was like how to pursue your wife in 31 days. And then like this love does or loved, I don't even know, just a marriage book. And I bought them both and I put them on his pillow and I said, here you go. Because I just, I didn't understand recovery. I didn't understand what it was going to take. I didn't understand that it was going to be messy. I didn't understand that he had a lot of healing to do in the beginning. And I did too, you know? And so I think understanding what healing looks like is it is a journey. It is a process. It is not perfect. 
there's a lot of imperfections, a lot of learning, a lot of growing, but to have grace with both of yourselves and to know that just because you're experiencing high emotions, that's actually a really good thing. And it's sucky in the moment, but it's so good because that means he's not running to his addiction. And if I'm dealing with my emotions for the very first time, that's such a good thing. So now it's just like, okay, now what do we do with it? You know? And so I I just, I want to, you know, share that because, um, that's the reality of recovery, you know, especially in the beginning, it's not going to be like that forever, but in the beginning, that's what it looks like. Mm. Yeah. That was beautifully put. It is, it is really messy. My situation was slightly different in that I called it really early on in the marriage, like day eight, (laughs) Yeah, really, really crappy honeymoon. Um, but that's only because I'd been in a previous relationship prior to becoming a Christian with an unrepentant porn addict and I'd already done this. So I knew exactly what was going to happen. And I was like, no, I'm not doing this again. And um, so when we started recovery, it was very much, uh, okay, don't know whether this is going to survive or not. However, I keep getting myself in this situation. You recover. I'm going to sort out why I keep doing this. Um and then we'll see. So we didn't have the same sort of pressure. So, you know, everybody's circumstances are different, but it's all really messy. So fortunately, I didn't care if he was completely, you know, well, I did care if he was a monster to live with, but it didn't have that same sort of, you know, gut punch because we were we were definitely allies as opposed to adversaries at that point because we were sort of walking our own parallel journeys, even though it was... <laughs> it's always difficult because, you know, they're triggered and resentful and taking it out on you and you're doing the same. And, you know, nobody's doing it perfectly. Everybody needs the other person to do it perfectly, but nobody's doing it perfectly. And it's really, really hard. And that's why external feedback is really important. Um, but it, it doesn't always stay like that and it does get better. But I, I love Charity's honesty in that she's saying, do you know what? It was better when he, when he was addicted. Mm. You know, it was better when he was acting out because I didn't have to deal with this. And and it's true. You know, they've got rid of their coping mechanism, their, their pacifier. Mm-hmm. Um and and it's it's pretty brutal and you know you can't get away from it but it gets better and and not only that you don't get the marriage you once had minus the pornography you get something completely new that you never had before that you might not have even yes. dreamed was possible um and Amen. that's girl <laughs> no but that, i mean that's the beautiful thing so you're going through this horrific horrific you know i mean it might have for me getting into recovery was actually a bit of a relief because it wasn't just me and him and him being just horrific. It was now other people going, oh, no, that's not normal. That's not normal. That That isn't right. So actually, there was a bit of relief when I got into recovery as opposed to things got worse. Things actually sort of got better because I got a bit of sanity and clarity and support. Um, but it is really hard. But, you know, nine months on, six months on even, completely different, completely different because we'd done that hard, hard work. Mm-hmm. 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 So you as a couple, you're laying there after surgery in your recovery beds. Um, what boundaries as a couple do you need to set now? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and I wish we would have, you know, I can only, I'm speaking from our experience and I speak from our story. And, uh, you know, what we did, unfortunately, I feel like we're just like the guinea pigs trial and error. And what we did is in the beginning, you're learning so much about yourself and you're also learning a lot about the other person. And especially if you, like we talked about, if you're in therapy and groups. And so the emotions are very raw, like we were talking about. And what Clinton and I did is we would 
every day, almost all day, because recovery is almost very all-consuming, right, um, in the beginning. And so we would share with each other everything, like all the time. And it just got really overwhelming because he was already very overwhelmed. I was already very overwhelmed. And it's not that the information was bad. It was good. I just think that if we could have saved and and created this, which we did long-term, we created a safe place for that information to be shared. Because I think sometimes we think that we need to share something right away. But in reality, time is kind of like a filter system. It kind of like keeps the good and what's really necessary. It may have seemed very important in that moment that I really wanted to share. But in reality, when you let a couple of days sit, maybe journal, maybe you talk to somebody about it, you realize, oh, I maybe didn't need to share that with that person. And that's what I wish we would have done in the beginning is not overwhelmed each other with our own recovery process. Is it all good stuff? Yes, but I think that there's really a time and place for those things to be communicated, what you're learning, new discoveries, right? Just um, maybe childhood trauma or things that you're learning about the addiction or trauma that you want the other person to learn about or game plans, you know, all of those things need to be communicated. But I think it's creating a safe place. We we started creating this thing called weekly check-ins and we would just ask each other, you know, like we would set aside time where we knew we weren't going to be distracted. The kids were already asleep and it was a precious time for me and him where it was safe. We grabbed our journals, you know, we, we, sh- we got whatever, um, that we wanted to share with each other. And we knew this, this was going to be our moment where we got to share with each other what maybe we learned, discovered. And I think that really, really helped us in the beginning because it can be so overwhelming, like I talked about. And yet also at the same time, I didn't understand my role. I wanted to help him really bad. So I became his accountability partner, which in reality, that was not my role. I'm his wife you know? And so creating healthy boundaries in the beginning, uh, really, really helped us. And it helped us understand to keep the marriage, the marriage. I'm his wife. He's my husband. And let's learn how to build an intimate relationship. And by doing that was really saving, saving specific, specific designated times for each other to share uh, new information and things that we learned throughout the week. Mm -hmm. Yeah, really, really good points there. Um, the, the whole of recovery is all about boundaries. And what really helps is to have it facilitated by someone who knows what they're doing. Just like, um, I mean, a massive boundary is celibacy. So, um, you know, 90 days of celibacy is pretty typical um, in most recovery programs because A, the addict needs time to, uh, to let the, the drug drain away. Um, but also you don't start to find out what's underneath until you've got rid of that coping mechanism. Um, and that's why we really, really don't recommend that you undertake a period of celibacy without supervision, because all that stuff is then going to bubble up and it's going to go somewhere. Um, and it's really, really brutal. You know, you'll find yourself one o'clock in the morning eating the, what was he eating? The Doritos? Hot Cheetos. Yeah, hot Cheetos. You see, like it's like because the pornography is not the problem. Well, it is a problem, but it's not the problem. It's the solution to this much deeper problem. And that's what the doing a period of celibacy is gonna bubble up all those undealt with feelings and emotions and everything. So you need a support group in place so that when your brain is going absolutely nuts and you can't act out, you've got people to call. You've got tools, you've got a healthy coping mechanism that you're learning how to exercise, that you're learning how to do these intimate 
you know, healthy fellowship relationships with other people. And that's what's going to get you and keep you sober. The fact that when you're freaking out and something is distressing you, you, you can then um, vent those feelings in a healthy way and get support as opposed to just having to use this unhealthy artificial coping mechanism, which is what pornography use is. Uh, so yeah, celibacy, really important, firm boundary. Um, but there's all sorts of little boundaries sprinkled throughout, um, recovery things like when a foundation of recovery is a full disclosure, the guy has to do a full disclosure, but you need boundaries around that. You don't need him to vomit out all the nasty details because that is going to just, you know, that's just really traumatic. So you need someone in there to go, do you know what? I'm going to filter this information and I'm going to ask the right questions and I'm going to I'm going to help you decide what you need to know so that you have that foundation of truth but you're not absolutely destroyed from all the nitty-gritty detail that's going to haunt you. So yeah, boundaries really really important um and just take advice from other people on on the boundaries that work and then there's the safety plan which is part of recovery which is going to put those boundaries in stone. So if this happens, there'll be the consequences and you don't have to think about it because if they if they relapse, you're going to go to crazy land in your head. They are already in crazy land in their head and everybody's is heights of emotion. You just need to get, you know, pull out your safety plan and go, okay, you've done this um, and you didn't tell me you'd done it within 12 hours or 24 hours, whatever it says on your bit of paper. These are the consequences and you can just, and just follow them. And then you've got people in place who are making you enforce those consequences because your brain's going to be going, oh no, I can't really kick him out of the house for three days. I know that's what it says on my safety plan, but I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. Then I've got to look after the kids and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it's not fair. I'm now the one suffering. He's acted out and I'm the one now suffering. But So you need other people to go and go, no, this is what you agreed. This is what you need. You have to, you have to do your, your boundaries, your safety plan. Mm-hmm. So boundaries all over the place, but they're so important. Yeah. And I even, I remember for ourselves too, I tried to be Braden's accountability partner. Right. And that was a boundary that I needed to No, I couldn't be that. That was just making it worse. And I, as much as I wanted to, so that I could you know, be on top of it, be the cop, so to speak, it wasn't putting me in a good place as charity kind of, refer- I'm the wife, right? I'm not. And so I needed someone else. And, and it wasn't until he got different accountability, not myself, someone outside of us, a third party, as Rosie was kind of saying, just to clean it up a little bit right? So that I'm not hurting in the day to day. So that's another boundary as well that we had to put in place. Yeah. And if I may just jump on that, because that not being accountability is so important and people don't realize it's because the role of the wife, you know, you've just upset me. And to be able to own that and go, I'm upset you've done that, you know, here are my consequences. But the role of accountability is to say, thank you very much for sharing, you know, (laughs) grace. Well done. You confess, keep coming back, brother, you know, possibly, look at the things leading up to it, but it's about grace and acceptance. That's not the role of the wife at that point. It's, I don't want to say I'm telling wives to get angry. I'm just saying you have to be authentic with your genuine reaction, which is you've just betrayed me again. And you've just deceived me for two weeks longer than you should have done. So that's why it's, it's, you cannot be the accountability partner. It's not just a case of it you know, it bums me out every time he tells me it's like, no, you have a role as a wife. You have a really important role as does the accountability partner. There are two really important roles that he, that the addict needs in his life and you can't do both. You just can't. I want to say something. I think it is so healthy to have a righteous anger against sin, right? right? It's like, cause you just reminded me like, yeah, like 
no, there is an anger there and it's healthy and it's okay to be angry, but it's reminding ourselves like, who are we really angry at? And I get it. Like I was very angry at my significant other. Okay. I'm not saying be this holy person, you know, like, but what I'm saying is just, you know, speaking now, like, you know, there's something biblical about being, feeling angered and your anger is valid because it's sin and it's, it's something that we don't like and God doesn't like, and he doesn't stand for that. You know, he does not stand for this. And so that, and we are like Christ. And so when we are angry, it's, it's a, it's a righteous anger. We're feeling the anger that God has towards porn and the damage of set, you know, that Satan has had and strongholds and footholds on marriages with the marriage bedroom and pornography and sex. Yeah. And we, and we have to, our job then is to take that anger and make it healthy anger, you know, like productive anger, not just, okay, right, I'm going to get my own back now. I'm going to, you know, all the ways that we act out in our anger that are really unhealthy and unhelpful and don't help him at all because they just send him back into his own spirals of lies of all women are like this. But actually like, yeah, I'm angry, but I'm going to have those, you know, calm, firm boundaries and there are going to be consequences, baby, you know? <laughs> and I'm going to vent at my, at my, at my support group. And they're going to get me venting because you don't need me venting. You just need some boundaries. You just need some consequences. And that's why uh, that's why this recovery community is such a blessing because all the mistakes everybody's made, you don't have to make or mm. make as many times. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, really important question, I think, is coming here. Uh, how do I rebuild intimacy? I think a lot of, you know, this happens okay, we're getting recovery, recovery, we're getting help. Um, how do I even build intimacy again? Like, I don't feel sexy. I don't like, I worry that he's thinking about other, like, how do I even build that? Um, how much time you got? You got two hours, three hours. <laughs> this is what you do charity. This is your thing. Build some more. Okay. So I'll do a third one here. No. <laughs> that is a whole topic. I feel like on itself, man, there's so much I could talk about. And I love talking about, um, cause it is, it is a big question. It's like, because intimacy is not just sexual intimacy, right? There's 12 levels of intimacy. There's so many levels of intimacy. Sex is just a pinnacle of all the other intimacies. You know, it's just like, oh, I, you know, because of all the other intimacies, we feel connected. And so then we're going to, you know, have sex. And so it's, there's so many different levels to it. And so many things that I could talk about, um, that I love talking about, um, and so one of those, I think, you know, for the significant other, um, the addict, I, you know, for him, his biggest role is that's going to even build intimacy is like we're talking about is gaining backgrounds for safety again. And that is going to build intimacy. It's, it's having a game plan to make her feel safe. You know, we can take that in a lot of directions. How can I make her feel safe in the bedroom again? You know, I could talk about that about forever because there are going to be so many emotions when you reconnect sexually again, you know, after maybe a 90 days of celibacy, you know, sex is going to be very different. It's, I personally can speak from experience. It's going to be incredible and just way more than you can even imagine, but there's going to be a lot of hurdles that even come in that, you know, how, how do you stop triggers, you know, from coming into the marriage bedroom on both ends, you know, especially if you're having addicted sex, like Rosie was talking about in our first episode, you know, um, having grace for him, I'm having grace for you when you're, you know, maybe having images pop up, you know, it's, it's learning to create safety back in the marriage bedroom. Again, what does that look like? And, and just having grace for one another, you know, I think it's huge. Uh, it is, it's also allowing 
I think for him, my husband did a really great job at just saying yes. You know, if there was a request that I said because maybe a trigger came up, I felt unsafe. I would just say, hey, you know, can you do X, Y, Z? It may sound controlling, but in reality, it's just for my safety. And that's what you have to get across. It's, you know, I would I would just encourage ladies that whenever you feel shaky, you know, when your ground is feeling crazy and maybe detective mode's coming out again, word it as, hey, I am feeling unsafe at the moment. Do you think that, you know, X, Y, Z, maybe you could you know, tell me where you were again, or, um, Hey, just for, you know, maybe a short time. Do you think we could download the app life 360? That was a big one for me is we downloaded this app called life 360 and you kind of just see where each other's whereabouts are. Cause a lot of, um, our, our story is he was acting out outside of the home and saying he was somewhere when he wasn't really. And so that built safety for me. It wasn't a controlling thing. It was just, Hey, if we're going to rebuild intimacy again, if we want to be fully known, if we both, cause that's what intimacy is, right? It's into me, you see, meaning that I see you, you see me, there isn't nothing is being hidden from each other anymore. And so if we are wanting to create that again, and not even again, but even better and more than you ever had or could even imagine in marriage, then we're going to be completely vulnerable, completely transparent. And you're, you know, it's, it's him allowing me to be able to see his whereabouts and that built safety for me. And, you know, it wasn't, I necessarily didn't even want the flowers. I just wanted safety and safety looked like many of the things that I had mentioned and and realizing that it's not going to be forever. It's temporary. One thing that helped Clinton and I is just learning how to have fun together again. Uh, Cause there was so much seriousness in our relationship, so much hurt right. in our relationship. And that really helped us. And if you're asking like, where do you even begin where we began is we just designated a time a night when after the kids went down, we had a glass of wine, we played some cards and we played a game. And the game was awesome because it allowed us to not talk or it allowed us to talk, but there was no, you know, kind of awkwardness. And it allowed us just have this free space to just talk if we wanted to, um, or, you know, just to laugh about the game, get competitive again. But I think it's really important to learn how to have fun together again, create new memories and um, new activities and just maybe pick up a hobby, paint, you know, just do something different where you guys are bonding over something together and laughing again. Cause I think that is so healthy. Mm. One thing I really appreciated about what you said, Charity, was when you said, um, phrase, phrase your request as I'm feeling unsafe because that's the reality. And so often we don't even realize that we don't even realize that actually it's our, it's our need for security. And we just jump straight to sort of blaming the other person. And I need you to be perfect, not understanding that you're both learning. You're both learning and growing at that stage. Those times when we get triggered um, are actually, although they could go horribly sideways and you could attack him, like you're, you're the reason that I'm feeling triggered, um, and it could, it could escalate into a row at that point because, you know, you're feeling triggered and you wouldn't be feeling triggered if he hadn't done this. And he's like, I'm trying to get better, but you're just like, we're just walking down the street and you've seen an attractive woman. Now you've turned into crazy woman, you know, like he's feeling trapped. Like, what can you do? I just want to say, actually, there is a golden opportunity there for intimacy. If you can turn to your partner and say, you know, not even maybe now, but maybe later, like, 
I just felt really unsafe. And it gives them an opportunity to say, I'm here for you and give you that reassurance without feeling defensive. And that's how you build the intimacy. It's not... It's not with everything being perfect that you build intimacy. It's actually navigating day to day those little things of like, I'm not perfect and I'm really hurting and I want to blame you, but I'm not. And him going, I know that and I'm feeling guilty, but blah, 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 blah. And, and just actually communicating all that junk. And that's what builds the trust that because you realize that actually you can show the ugly of, you know, like, I really hate you right now because I can't walk down the street without being triggered. I really, really hate you right now. And he can go, you know, I hear you and I, you know, I, you know, I don't, he can just empathize with you without being responsible and having to be defensive. And, and that's what means when you feel that he can hear you without being defensive or angry, something magical happens because then you feel safe. You feel like he's really there for you. And when he can come to you and say, do you know what? I'm, I've been having a really hard couple of days just struggling. And this doesn't happen at the beginning. It might happen later on. You know, can you pray for me? And you can actually go, okay, I can do that without feeling triggered. And oh my God, I can't believe you're still like this. That's when he feels safe. And that's what brings the intimacy. And your significant other is going to build intimate relationships with other men in his groups. You know, that's normally what ends up happening. He has his groups, she has her groups. And because there's validation there, then they feel seen, heard, seen, you know, felt. And so they're being intimate with groups. He's being intimate in his relationships with his groups. She is too. But what I realized is I also wanted to be intimate with my husband. And so how do you do that is exactly what Rosie's talking about is creating that safe place for emotions and without, you know, backfiring, attacking and, um, you know, it getting all violent, but you know, it's really creating that safe place for emotions. Yeah. The, the, I've heard it. I can't remember who said it, but it's like the groups are like laboratories. How do we say this in America? Laboratory? Laboratory? How do we say it? The lab. <laughs> the lab. It's like a lab for intimacy, those groups. So that's where you learn those skills and you actually realize that, hey, if I actually express who I am, the world, the, you know, the sky is not going to fall. It's okay. People still love and accept me when I really express the ugliness that is in my heart. Um, and then, you know, your husband is, is learning how to do that as well. And so you're, you're both learning how to give feedback, how to challenge, how to hear, how to not feel responsible for everybody's feelings. That was a big one for me in recovery groups. Like I just to sit there and have people, you know, tell me their stories and their, and their, you know, big, big feelings. And I didn't have to fix them. That was brilliant. You know, but no, in all seriousness, that was amazing. So now when my husband goes, you know, big emotions, I can just, I don't have to fix them. I can just be there. Well, ladies, this has been wonderful. This has been great. Um, There's a lot of information here to take in and a lot of um, really good stuff. So thank you again, ladies. Really appreciate having you on. It's been so much fun. Yes, thank you. Thanks again, everybody, for listening. We'll see you next week. Cheerio. Thanks for listening. If you would like to hear more, please visit purevictorypodcast.com to subscribe. This podcast was made possible by the generous donations of our subscribers. If you would like to help support the cause financially, once again, please visit purevictorypodcast.com.